You are now tuned in to the True Say Podcast, unpacking age-old questions and concepts we reflexively ignore. In this podcast, we're going to revisit topics to help make the critical connections you may have overlooked. Think Quentin Tarantino meets 60 Minutes, where we start at the end and finish at the beginning. Except, in this podcast, we only need 43. I am your host, True Say. Join me as I provide you with a modern perspective. Let's get started. Actually, before we unpack today's topic, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank my sponsors at Bean Bundle, Canada's newest coffee subscription. It's been great. Ever since I stumbled on this service, I've been able to put my mocha pot to good use with beans they sent me from legitimate roasters across the country. Bean Bundle makes it so easy for people like me who are trying to find their particular roast but don't know where to start. The process is super quick. Just visit beanbundle.com, choose the amount of coffee you want on a monthly basis, medium roast, dark roast, whatever your flavor, and they ship you different beans from their latest roster of roasters on a monthly basis. Best part about being from the sixth side is if you live in Canada, they ship to you absolutely free. And if you sign up using code TRUESAY25, you'll save 25% off your subscription. Now, if you've been rocking with the True Save podcast, listen for your cue to get your hot brew provided by Bean Bundle ready, and let's get into it. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to another edition of the True Save podcast. Um, I keep on giving you all homework. I keep on telling you and reminding you. You keep on handing in your assignments late. Listen, folks, I need you to continue to push the True Save podcast. Listen, it's a simple assignment. Okay, you have your marching orders. I want you to find at least one person who you know for a fact has not listened to an edition of the True Say podcast. I want you to force upon them the link to this edition, and I want you to implore them like and say in these words verbatim, you have to listen to this or else you will never be the same if you do not listen to this. Regardless, listening to this podcast will change your outlook for the rest of the day that I can commit to, that I can promise. And then leave it at that. End. Full stop. Okay? All right. Now, let's get into today's edition. Today's edition is affordable housing is an oxymoron. Right? Now, think about this for a second. Um, The human species is the only species on this entire planet who has to pay to live somewhere. To pay to habit, inhabit the planet Earth. No other species on the planet pays to live on Earth. Now imagine this. Not only are we the only species on the planet who actually pays to live on the planet, there's nowhere else for us to go. (laughs) We literally cannot leave the planet Earth because there's nowhere to go, right? You are paying taxes to occupy land. You're paying taxes to obviously to maintain it, I perceive, but you're still paying to live on the planet Earth, right? You pay to occupy a shelter. You pay to have a roof over your head. You pay to live within some type of four-walled or six walls if you cut the floor or the ceiling, you know, structure, right? Animals don't pay. Bugs don't pay. Birds don't play. Um, aquatic animals, the whole shebang. They're the only species that plays to live on the planet Earth. And then the corollary of that, if we so choose to leave Earth and not have to pay, you literally will succumb to a very, very slow and burdensome death by way of asphyxiation because there's nowhere else you can go 
because there's no oxygen anywhere else in the universe. So, or in the solar system. There you have it. So, like once again, why are we even having the conversation about affordable housing? Why should housing? Why should there even be a thought about housing being affordable? It should be a given, a human right. There should be no kind of context where there's a there's a question about living somewhere has to be affordable or not. It should become. It should only change when you're trying to determine whether or not how luxurious your your housing should be. Like when you think about it, brass tacks. Everybody should be able to live wherever they want. Right now, when it comes to trying to limit and supply and demand, I understand when it's like, okay, I want to live in this vicinity. They just, just you know, there's limited real estate, right? Or there's only so much land that one person can occupy. So it should be a question of, well, unfortunately, this area is completely taken up on a first come, first serve basis, or you know, some systematic way of going about it. It's been taken up. So if you want to live somewhere, these are the places that are available to you. Go and live there. But now we're walking into a situation where regardless of your actual life circumstance or your vocation, there's still going to be a limitation on where you can live just on the brass tax of affordability. Some people can't even afford to rent a room in places because it's just too expensive. Renting a one bedroom apartment in some freaking context is of upwards of thousands of dollars monthly. And then minimum wage won't allow you to pay to actually won't allow you enough money to one pay your rent to allow you to actually um, live comfortably and have additional income or surplus amount to go and spend money and buy things and take care of your amenities. So when we get into the whole conversation about affordable housing, it just boggles my mind, especially when you think about all the number of homeless people, right? Then and I know I'm, I'm completely just diving right in. I'm not even giving any context, but this is really a, a thought that I had no time to actually avoid getting right into it. So then you think about people who are, you know, buying lunar bodies or buying planetary objects that aren't even in our solar system or stars or gases, whatever the case may be. And you think to yourself, who the heck owns these planets or these stars or these gaseous luminary bodies that are in are in our lunar bodies sorry, that are in the galaxy how are you able to sell that who's selling it who's who's the authority that can determine who owns it how do you determine a price is it like based on how many light years away it is and then when you buy it is it really worth anything who are you giving the money to because let's say for instance i want to buy a gaseous star that is three light years away and somebody next to me buys a gaseous star that's only 2.8 light years away now does that mean I can sell the person whose uh, star is 2.8 light years away is actually worth more because, you know, brass tax, it's technically closer to the planet Earth. So that means if somebody eventually developed the technology that could provide them with an ability to to fly out to this star, that since it's closer, it's worth more. Because when you think about every type of real estate we deal with on the planet Earth, Proximity to a metropolitan or proximity to a city core for some reason increases the value of it. So if we're thinking about quote unquote proximity to Earth and we have a gaseous star that's 2.8 light years away as a, compared to 3.0, is that one worth more? And then if it's worth more, can I sell that or barter that in exchange for land on Earth? Like, it's just madness to me that there is still this conversation about homelessness. 
I feel like unless people choose to be nomads and don't want to participate in society and don't subscribe to the idea that they want to live in a enclosed space or they don't want to cohabit in a building with other people and you know they want to kind of live outside the system then by all means you should do so and if you just don't subscribe to the idea of living in this conventional way that society has dictated then by sure you know for lack of a better term live precariously live as a homeless person and find your home somewhere else outside the confines of a building or a house or a condo whatever you want to call it but the fact that there are people out there who would really prefer to live in a housing unit would prefer to live in a home but can't because of affordability is madness it's madness so for instance in ontario in toronto canada very recently there have been a number of homeless encampment areas that have been removed forcibly and physically removed by the same people who are supposed to protect the civilians of Ontario. Police, right? So the police service in Ontario, in Toronto, Canada, have taken it upon themselves, I should say that even that, the provincial government, or not even, sorry, the municipal government as we call it in Ontario, they have gone about municipal, it goes municipal, uh, provincial, and then federal, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Canadian political system. Municipals are kind of at like the city regional level. They have determined that they do not want to have any homeless folks building and uprooting shelters in public spaces, so in parks. But what's happened is a number of them have decided to essentially congregate in these public spaces, these parks, and, you know, put, build up encampments where they live and they, you know, convene and have their fun, etc. That's the, that's where they live. It's an open public space, right? Public means it's available for public use. Now, as we all know, many of the stipulations and bylaws for how a public space are governed is those governance is dictated by the municipal government or the, the powers that be, the locally elected politicians. And because of that, they've made it a point to say that public space, although accessible by all, can only be used a certain way, right? And then the reason why they do that is to avoid the tragedy of the commons which is a theory that more or less associates that when you have common spaces that are basically accessible to all, there will be a few who will go and exploit it. And then when that exploitation becomes, I want to say addictive, but when that exploitation behavior becomes, or up, is the uptake of that exploitative behavior starts to spread within the community, the whole common space gets ruined and dilapidated and the resource that was once viable for all to use now becomes extinguished, right? Or eliminated. So the likelihood of that would happen in any case is always ever present. So you have these governance structures in place. Well, you know, how can you access it? When can you access the space? What can you do in the space? How many people can be there? That's the reason why you usually have these governance structures in place, right? To avoid this whole common space being exploited and essentially used up for no good, right? So I get that. But then there's argument where you have people who are in a region or in an environment, right, who are unable to actively afford housing because not only the price is exorbitant, but the incomes and the jobs and the wages available don't allow for anyone to actively live somewhere. They're forced to find shelter, right? And they're doing so in a public space which you've essentially afforded them the luxury of using. 
Now, their use of it might not fall within that whole bylaw and governing structure I told you about, but they're literally between a rock and a hard place, the rock being the solid ground and a hard place being they can't afford to live anywhere and live anywhere else. So because of that, why would you not want to allow them to either A, live there, or B, find a solution or an intervention that wouldn't involve physical removal? Now, I get it. You can't necessarily broker a conversation with um, one encampment because there might not be an authority figure who is like the quote unquote leader of the group. Right. So I guess the conversation wouldn't be quick and seamless, but you could definitely engage the community regardless of who they are and what walk of life they are. This is definitely a community. Right. Just because they don't fall into the convention that you're so familiar with in that they don't live in these brick and mortar homes on a city street with driveways and cars and a, a two kid family and two. They're still a community. Right. So a community can be engaged and every community has their nuances. They have their own belief systems. They have their own values that you need to appreciate. And then once you have a good, solid understanding of them, you can find that middle ground and work together to arrive at a solution. Both people want something, right? The police service want to make sure the public space was available to all and not have this whole tragedy of the comment that I mentioned. And the folks and the community members who are using and occupying that space for their, for their shelter and their homes they also want to find a place where they can come to comfortably and know it'll be there when they come back to it, right? They want homes as well. The homes they have just don't fall into the same definition as yours. Now, not and, and the thing about it is too, it's not what's so sad is so many people assume automatically that those who are homeless are homeless because they are drug addicts or they're homeless because you know they, they, they had missteps that they could have been avoided. It's their fault. No, a lot of people aren't homeless for that reason. There's a whole host of reasons why people are homeless. They're not a monolithic group. They all don't have the exact same reasons, exact same background and experiences. They're all very, very unique. And I can say that confidently. If you take the time to listen to some of them, yes, you might hear some commonalities. But the reason why they're there, why they choose to be there could be very different. Some might be suffering from addiction. Some might be suffering from mental health challenges. Some may have no family. Some may have had one misstep that have listened, that have landed them in a situation where they're not very vulnerably housed or precariously moving between, you know, encampment to encampment. Some of them are willingly. Some want to be there because they find safety in their community. They feel welcomed by their community for whatever reason. But the point is to physically remove people from an encampment because you don't want them to live somewhere and then identify this whole idea of affordable housing just seems so oxymoronic. Housing should be a given right. It should not be a privilege. The privilege should come into whether or not your house has gold embroidered toilet seats or you have a diamond dispenser in your fridge, whatever the case may be. Like that should be where the privilege is. The affordability of those luxuries should be what is actually associated together. But not this idea of affordable housing. How is that even a thing, a concept? You need to determine whether or not you can afford to live somewhere on planet Earth when you can't live anywhere else. You need to understand and identify with the world or the society you live in. Okay, if I do not choose to fall into the conventions or the rules that you've determined for my life, then I can't live here. Because what they're really telling you is you need to fall in line and follow the structure and follow the rules, right? The rules dictate you need to be a productive member of society. And that involves 
producing some type of labor that contributes to the society you're in, contributes to the economy, makes money for someone, and by doing that, you'll be compensated for your time, which you then can use that compensation to pay for your brick and mortar home, the amenities, um, and also the other different utilities you're using to once again be able to continue to be a productive member of society. If you choose not to do that, then you can be homeless, fine. But you can't be homeless in this society. So it's disincentivizing this lifestyle, for lack of a better term. When many people who are homeless aren't necessarily against the idea of being productive members of society, but maybe they just don't necessarily fit into the frame that you want them to fit into. So once again, when you're thinking about this whole idea about owning land and paying for land and all these things it just harbors all about this whole un well one this unceded territory question when who's a, who's the owner of this land how is it that these powers or these bodies have now claimed ownership of a land that they stole from indigenous folks and not only did they steal it from indigenous people it's the people who were literally here first and claimed ownership They've now applied this exorbitant price tag on living here. And if you're unable to actually maintain a certain way of life, you cannot be afforded the safety net or the social structures will not protect you from falling on hard times. And then when you do fall on hard times and determine, you know, I'm not going to encroach on anybody else's liberties. Let me just stay in a public park that's supposed to be there serving the people. Right. So this public resource, I'm using it for my own needs. Like I determined that my need of the park is not for exercise or leisure. I need to use this space, this land for my living situation. And it's like, no, you can't do that. We don't want you here because that's the tragedy that comes. This space is for everybody. And some folks want to use it for this purpose, playing, have their kids running around, congregate for a short period of time. And now because you've essentially occupied all of it, other people can't use it, right? And then comes in the question, okay, you have two people, so say two people, two groups, and maybe I'm really reducing it, but for sake of argument, for the true say model, we need to have that juxtaposition. Two groups on either side of the fence, and pun intended, because what was happening in the encampments is they were like literally being fenced off by the authorities to ensure that A, people couldn't get back in, and B, to keep the protesters away from the whole removal, forcible removal of folks from these encampments right so one side of the fence is saying well who cares they're not bothering me and it's fine if they're living in these if they're encamping in the park i rather they encamp in the park than encamp in the lobby of my my building or encamp in the lobby of my my condominium or on my lawn for instance and then you have other folks on the other side of the fence who are saying well i don't think they're the people who are in these parks are there for the right reasons and because i don't necessarily appreciate or identify with their lifestyle i'm not going to automatically assume they're all you know abusers of drugs of illicit substances and i don't want my children to see that or be around it i feel like they're going to have a number of needles in the ground because they're all probably doing these very you know injection injectable substances yada 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 so they just automatically associate this negative connotation to this group this community right because of assumptions, because of movies, media, uh, one, one, you know, very quick decision or observation they made and they arrive at this conclusion, right? And then you have the government saying, okay, well, we need to appease our citizens, which these members of the encampment areas are citizens. We need to appease them. So what we're going to do is 
forcibly remove the ones who aren't paying taxes because they're not working and try to keep those who are paying taxes higher because they're more important to us. And then when we forcibly remove these folks, we'll give them a solution, a very catch-all, grandiose solution that won't be a long-term solution. It'll be a short-term solution up until the government feels as if the masses, those on the side of the fence who support these folks, kind of feel like they're, they've been ameliorated and boom, we can then dispose of the homeless population, right? Because, it's and, it, and I say that so facetiously, and I was being facetious because when it, at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. There's so much we don't know about what's happening to these people. One, um, it's just not in our faces often until you see these news outlets talking about it. Two, um, many of the time, this is a forgotten group that you know don't really have their rights or privilege, should say rights, their rights and um, yeah, their rights being attended to. They're generally forgotten and left behind because once again, they don't fall into that category of being quote unquote productive members of society. And then three, there's just a lot that there's a lot of support that these folks generally need. It's not as simple as saying the uh, there's no silver bullet, right? We're talking about a wide ranging of social determinants that are impacting these folks. It is not just going to be one program that comes about and actually solves a day or saves them from any hardship. It's just it's just more to it. So when you see that, what happens is many of the times they just figure, okay, let's just try and appease them for a short period of time and then move on. Because you're hearing about folks who are saying, okay, we're going to forcibly remove these people from these encampments, right? And then, boom, you're seeing them being told, okay, we're going to offer you a safe, uh, safe indoor shelter to stay in, right? And then... Funny enough, safe indoor shelter is actually hasn't you know if you if you contract it into an acronym or you know reduce it to an acronym it's SIS, right? Safe indoor shelter, but that's also synonymous with safe injection site. <clears throat> so what happens is they're now conflating the two, thinking when you say safe indoor shelter, you're gonna bring me into a safe injection site, and I might not be an abuser of injectable substances, but because they're not getting they're not being told, they're not being engaged, not being shared or, or actually engage in the the development of a solution, finding out what their needs are and how they can be met, they're just being thought that, well, you're obviously here because you want shelter and can't afford it, right? And then it brings us full circle back to this whole idea of affordable housing. Why is housing unaffordable? It doesn't make any sense. And then secondly, how is it that you can start buying housing on different planets when we don't even know who owns the land here? We know that the territories we all occupy now were stolen lands. Many of us arrived on our lands for different reasons, but one group came in, persuaded another group to just allow them to take control, and now they've basically taken ownership for it in perpetuity. So now, the land you're living on, you have to pay this group to live on it, when they themselves don't even own it. And then, it's not even to say, I have to pay to live on this land because, um, you know, I've chosen to live and occupy this planet as opposed to my home planet. It's no, this is the only place you can live. And because it's the only place you can live, I'm going to charge you to stay here. Right? You, you literally have to pay to live. 
And there's been movies galore about this whole idea of pain to live. There's that movie with Justin Timberlake. I can't remember what it's called. Where you had to literally work just to have more time on your clock to stay alive. And it's and funny enough, we don't question these things. We just, we just accept it as a way of life. Paying, paying to have a shelter. Paying to have a roof over your head. Paying to be taught something. Now, I understand the whole concept of exchange of goods and services, right? I understand when I'm exchanging my currency to pay for a property that you owned. Okay, so like for instance, once again, like I mentioned, I have, let's say, I live in a condominium that this person paid for the wood and paid for the piping and paid for the um the aluminum and the copper etc to build it and now i want to buy that structure from someone else that makes sense but what happens and also is you have to pay taxes to occupy that land that part doesn't make sense to me because now they're saying well the land you're on i'm maintaining and because i'm maintaining the land you need to pay for it but that's not even the case because if the land was to be unleveled, that cost now comes to me. If there was supposed to be a tornado, the cost of rebuilding the land comes to me, falls on the owner. You're just paying taxes to pay taxes. You know, it's one certainty in life. Now, yes, taxes do go on to support amenities to some extent, right? You, you, you probably don't, the system around us is, is leverage and sits upon this whole tax payment model, which makes complete sense because we have these public services and goods that many of us utilize, but still there are many people who are not being met by these services. There are millions of folks who are unable to be caught, who fall through the cracks, who are forgotten, who aren't taken care of, and taxes continue to go up. Prices continue to go up, inflation continues to go up. But then with that being said, the, the services that we receive don't change and get maximized half the time. They remain the same. But the cost of receiving them goes up. The cost of your taxes goes up every year. But once again, the changing in what you receive doesn't change. You don't get more services or more protections or more, you know, uh, save, savior, I should say savior, more, I want to say protection again, safety, let's say, safety from any liabilities. No. What you initially got when you started paying taxes up until the end of time when you paid taxes stays the same. You'll see minor improvements or slight modifications that might adjust given the new community or people who are paying the taxes. But for the most part, it remains the same. And it's crazy to me. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, it's crazy because I haven't even, I've never visited Los Angeles, California, right? And the reason why I bring up LA, California is because of the famous Skid Row community. Now, many of us know Skid Row because it's been talked about in the news, it's always mentioned as a place where, you know, you don't really want to venture if you don't have to. But Skid Row is in downtown LA, um, and it's you know it has a population of anywhere between forty two hundred to eight thousand homeless people, right? Now the crazy thing about Skid Row is that it's been in existence from like the like the eighteen eighties. This community has existed, right? Now, what's interesting about it is that it's it's literally identified on a map, right? They have recognition 
as a long-standing homeless community in, the LA, in downtown LA. You can live there. You can, you can identify it as an address, so to speak. Now, of course, I'd be remiss not to mention that there are a number of groups, a number of communities and organizations that have come across this skid row and do what they can to speak to their healthcare needs, offering wraparound supports. And when I mean wraparound supports, I mean social services, um, primary care, um, educational type benefits, um, work placement type services, etc. I don't know them because I've never been, and I don't I don't live in Los Angeles, but I can confidently assume that there are a number of groups who have recognized that the members of this Skid Row community require support, right? So all that being said, we understand all of that. But now you have this community that's recognized. I don't know if they have the ability to vote because I don't know if they have, if they fall into once again that system, that construct that society has imposed upon us. But they're, they're not thriving, but they're surviving, right? And Essentially, they've they've congregated members of the homeless community into this one area, and it you know it fluctuates because you have quote unquote immigration and migration, right? Folks immigrate into the community, and folks migrate away from the community. But when you juxtapose it against the Ontario, Toronto, Canada situation, they there's not many places like Skid Row on the planet. No, I take that back. There aren't many places like Skid Row on in North America, right? You see, you, you hear about all these different communities that are similar to this in different contexts. And what I mean by that in different contexts, like for instance, in Brazil, you'll hear people refer to their equivalent of Skid Row as a favela, or you go to Mexico and you'll hear people call a similar, con, a similar con, context or community as a barrio, like, you know, and they exist in all different countries. But the, the difference is, is like, like, Typically, folks who are local to that country or local to the community know about these areas, know where they reside and kind of know whether or not they want to steer away from it or go to it, whatever the case may be. But they all have this negative connotation associated with it, as does Skid Row. But Skid Row seems to have this different level of formality or um, recognition in terms of its being geographically identified and just how much it's the name pervades throughout all of media and social media and pop culture it just keep on it, it continues to be identified as like the epitome of what it means to be living in this community it's like the homeless community right and funny enough we didn't even talk about the various types of homelessness that exists like there we always just associate homelessness with those who are um you know living there permanently or um the, the ones that are essentially there because they have to they have no other option right but there's there's different kinds of homelessness right there's like there's like at least four different types there's chronic there's episodic there's transitional and then there's hidden and all we ever keep on focusing on are the chronically homeless right we don't generally capture those who are episodically homeless because they're there and then they're gone. And then we don't really think about the transitional ones. We just look at them as vulnerably housed. They're the ones that are, like I mentioned before, unable to afford a home. So they, they couch serve for their, their house hopping, going from different family members and then going to different shelters until they can make ends meet or, you know, by the grace of God alone or some luck might have, it, might have them, they get to eventually prop in and get somewhere a bit more permanent. But for the most part, we only look at those in Skid Row or those who are in these campments as those who are chronically homeless, right? That's just the way they live. But there's so many different types. 
And the reason why there are so many different types is all because of this affordable housing situation. It's become so mainstream that so many people just look at it as another status symbol. If I can afford to live wherever I am, that means I'm doing well in life and I don't care about those who aren't. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, do all the things that I did, and make your life better for yourself. Instead of questioning the whole paradigm about living, paying to live on a planet where you have no other, else, other place to live. Paying someone who, just paying the government, a tax or whatever the case may be, or a, a rent, an exorbitant fee that's determined by the, the economy and the players in the system that continue to inflate it just to essentially increase their bottom line or wad their pockets. Keep on paying into this construct and doing and breaking your back and figuring out methods and means or however the case may be to uh, be able to navigate that system and continue this this whole paradigm about affordability of housing like i can afford it so it doesn't bother me it's not my problem it's the problems of those folks who for whatever reason can't afford it but i don't care why they can't because it's likely because they're lazy or they're incapable or they don't want to or you know they had hard times and they have no family if they had just done a b and c they'd be in a better situation as opposed to questioning the whole construct itself about paying to live on earth like I said, I understand capitalism. Uh, capitalism. I understand the the need to to make money and earn money, and the exchange of goods and services makes complete sense. I know I'm not just saying that. Oh, all housing should just be there. Should be no cost associated with living somewhere. Um, everybody should live on the planet for free, because I know that's just not that's just not gonna happen, right? We live in a world where society is is predicated on the idea of hierarchy. Right, it's predicated on those that have and those that don't have. We need not what we need, but the way in order to maintain the whole ethos of working hard and and being successful, there needs to be this idea that there are haves and haves nots, right? Or else everything would kind of fall on its head. If we were living in that, it would be just a communist living, right? Everybody would be the same. And I'm not talking about communism and we all need to be the same, etc. I'm talking about the idea that there shouldn't be. Uh, an inability for people to live somewhere simply because they don't fit your definition of a productive member of society or simply because they're incapable of working somewhere. Now, there needs to be, you know, protections and guards and, and barriers to prevent exploitation and abuse of a system. I, that is exactly what I'm saying. But I'm just getting back to the point that this whole concept of affordable housing to me is foreign because it shouldn't be a question of you having to afford to live somewhere. It should be a human right. So I think this is an opportune time for us to have one of these. Yep, you heard it. That's your cue. So for all of you who haven't had a chance to get in a beverage, I know I'm going to. Make sure you whip out something hot or cold, soft or hard. Take a quick sip. If you've been here combating my whole thought process alongside me during this edition, now the time to get yourself hydrated and then pick back up as we kind of present our closing thoughts and you know reposition ourselves for reconnecting next week so i'll give you a second okay so we're back again live let's get into the closing arguments that i have for this edition um you know honestly it's 
an interesting conversation and that was really stimulating because I've been watching a lot of news and media talking about these police officers who's for, who are forcibly removing folks and you're seeing these individuals who are living in these encampments, having their, their, their tents just destroyed, their all their personal belongings just thrown across the, the parks. They have no ability to go back and collect their things. They're literally just being uprooted from their homes, all because they chose to they chose to basically occupy a, a public space, right? And it and I understand the idea that you know it's it's not just theirs to choose what they want to do with it. It's excuse me, not only not alone for just them to occupy and then essentially uh, uh, disallow or prevent other folks from um, you know engaging in their activity on that space. I just think it's it's sad that we're living in a world where housing is something that you need to be able to afford in order to attain. It's not even, it's no longer looked upon as a, a right. It's looked upon as something you need to earn, something you need to maintain and pay for, especially when you're coming from a history where the lands that, these, that we're occupying don't even belong to us. They're, the territories have been unseated. They've been stolen. The treaties that were written were completely one-sided, um, and the ownership has been claimed by these powers that these you know these powers who contrived and stole this land through various means are now controlling the the, the whole gain and capitalism of it all by charging these exorbitant fees to live on them when there's no there's no alternative unless you have these privatized organizations who are essentially once again going against this whole outer space treaty and and buying and buying land from different places or I shouldn't say outer space treaty yeah sorry the 1967 outer space treaty going and telling you what you can buy and what you can't buy or sorry circumventing all of that and this is private organizations circumventing this whole idea of being able to buy land and just charging you whatever they want for it because there's nothing you can do and if you have the money to pay for it then by all means pay for it right buy the land who cares and, and and that's just it. Who cares? Right? Who cares? If you can spend your money on some land or real estate on an extraterrestrial planetary body, by all means. If you can spend your money to occupy land on some lunar body, by all means, go ahead. But for those of us who are earthbound and are still trying to have a life and explore the crevices and and different countries and terrains of earth if you want to live on this planet which you were born and are native to you need to pay to do so and and just think about all those civilizations that used to toil the land farm the land harvest from the land there was never this concept of paying to live on it this new modern day understanding that you now need to pay to live on the land was all about I just basically creating this whole classist system where you have elite, you have average, you have below average, you have impoverished, you have the homeless. And to this day, anybody who's not elite is completely forgotten about. Uh, forgotten about, sorry. Those that are elite are consistently being pedestalized and raised high to make sure that they felt they feel good and have their needs met. It's uh, it's un, unrealistic that you need to have different ranges of income, moderate, low, high income, all these different things to be able to determine whether or not you can afford to live somewhere. 
if your income is low and, and the housing you're in exceeds more than 30% of your income in order to maintain it, you are no longer living in an affordable unit. You are living outside of your means. And once again, I don't living above your means should only extend to when you're trying to go and acquire luxuries. It shouldn't be living above your means to afford a one bedroom apartment. That should never be a question. It should never be that you have to, once again, exceed some type of income bar in order to be able to assume a place or have a shelter of your head. The fact that we live in a society where it's okay to have neighborhoods full of the impoverished, neighborhoods full of people who don't have access to wraparound supports, like I mentioned earlier, primary care, housing, social services, etc. The fact that we're okay with that is a bigger problem in society. This idea that you know, in some countries, they have the idea that love thy neighbor or, you know, these patriotic countries that really want to take care of their own, their citizens, their compatriots. But they watch them toil and waste away in these in the streets. Right. They're just completely left to, left to the cold, left to the wild to fend for themselves. It, it's not my problem. So who cares if you can't figure it out? Too bad. So sad. And I don't know. Just watching these these media outlets talk about human beings being removed forcibly by the police is just sad. And the last thing I really want to mention before I close is just the people who are consistently protesting on the side of, you know, the, the, the vulnerably housed or the homeless, the precarious community, precariously housed community that, you know, oh, this is wrong. You shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't remove them from the encampments. You shouldn't. Uh, you shouldn't take apart their homes. Funny enough, that's all they're doing, you know, just protesting. They're not opening up their homes to these homeless. They're not fundraising to help build shelters. They're not coming up with novel ideas in the form of modular units or auxiliary dwelling units. You know, they're just using their civil liberties to make some noise and feel like they're changing the world because... One day they protested against the police and maybe they got a baton to the head and maybe they didn't, but now they have a story to tell, you know, and that's really what it all boils down to. A story to tell their friends when they're having a cookout or a barbecue in their backyards. And more needs to be done. There needs to be a collective understanding. There needs to be a collective movement towards raising the floor, dismantling this belief that unless you make a certain income, you can't afford to live in a home. There needs to be more recalibration of this whole economic structure, whereas owning a place near where your place of work or even living in a a one bedroom unit in a sky rise building, not even on land, in the air now, shouldn't be inaccessible, shouldn't be out of reach. I think we're getting more and more out of touch with reality when we're bound by this new way of thinking that in order to live anywhere, you need to have half a million dollars or upwards of that just to occupy some space, not even the land in the air somewhere. So I hope this topic was compelling. I hope it got you thinking. I hope it had you questioning some constructs that, you know, have been so well held and are very concrete. And if not, I hope you have some questions of your own that maybe were stimulated through this edition. But nonetheless, I'll be back here once again next week. So I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to talking with you next week. Until then, peace.